This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at a movie currently in cinemas and compare and contrast it to cinema of days gone by, genre, filmmakers, and otherwise. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw on the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald. On today's episode, we are going to talk about movies that are super popular that we just don't like, that we can't get our heads around, we can't get our our interest into, and we love movies, but we don't love these. So, so I guess we're we're gonna break free with some of our inner haters. <laughs> it's kind of our naysayer contrarian edition. The F bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Suffice it to say, we see a lot of movies over the course of a year, uh, both uh, the new stuff in theaters, if uh, say it's something that we're going to be writing about or or just stuff we go to see for the fun of it, or if we're lucky, because in this neck of the woods, we don't get a lot of older movies showing up on the big screen. But, uh, but lately, there have been kind of a classic of the month series at Cineplex and uh, some other special presentations and so on. Usually they screen, screen it... Uh, a couple times over the course of a month and you have to scramble to try and make some of those screenings. I know that uh, in August, Planet of the Apes is going to be on the big screen at Cineplex Cinemas, uh, at specially chosen Cineplex Cinemas across Canada. So I got to scramble to try and get to one of those because I've never seen it in a theater. And I love that film uh, going back to my my childhood. So, uh, and and of course, uh, you know, certainly we, we talk about Netflix on here sometimes and the, there's a mix of made for the small screen and, and theatrical features that show up on there. And of course, we both collect movies on uh, digital media DVDs and I you know I certainly still have VHS and Laserdisc kicking around the old apartment <laughs> that's that's on you buddy I, I've oh, gone yeah, on for, to for Blu- sure I've got on to Blu-ray myself although I do have quite a few I still have more DVDs than Blu-rays that's for sure and uh, in fact uh, when we did our Paul Schrader episode we wanted to talk about Blue Collar, but the only copy that was handy was my VHS copy, and it was buried in a box somewhere in the back of a storage locker, and I didn't feel like searching for it. So I've since ordered a DVD of that film at the low, low price of six ninety eight from Amazon. So I figure I, you know, we will be able to watch that, not in time for the show that's already you know, been posted and everything, but, but at least we'll be able to do some catching up, uh, that way. But we watch a lot of films and, uh, not all of them are good. And, uh, sometimes, uh, we see stuff that, uh, is 
you know, been deemed to be overwhelmingly popular and we kind of scratch our heads at it and, uh, you know, it happens. And, and then I watch stuff that I know is utter dreck, especially weird programmers from the 30s and 40s that, that uh, you know, nobody in their right mind should be watching in this day and age. But for some reason, if it's TCM took the trouble to air this strange uh, entry in some nondescript detective series, uh, you know, featuring uh, Warren William, the star that nobody remembers, then darn it, I'm going to watch that film and and add it to the bottomless pit of uh, cinematic necessity for myself. Yeah, so. and, and I have a, a weak spot for anything that resembles a uh, sort of a, a spy picture, like especially if it has international European locations, then I'm all over that. And, and that's my weak spot. And, and occasionally a good indie film that maybe didn't get a cinematic release here but has an actor in it that I really like or a filmmaker whose work previously I've appreciated, I'll track that down. And, uh, and sometimes I can find that on VOD. And so these are the kinds of things that happen. We oversaturate ourselves. And so sometimes... I mean, this is the curse of being serious about film and writing about it and talking about it is that, that we are patients for the, the, the wide release blockbuster or, you know, what have you, uh, whatever it is uh, that, that becomes very popular completely. I, I'll just speak for myself. I am unable to understand the appeal. And I get pretty critical when I'm, you know, when I see all that money on the screen, especially for the big Hollywood blockbusters. And I just go, what a waste. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you hear the record block, you hear the box office to be, be over the moon. And you're just like, how is this possible? So, you know, I don't want to be a hater. I don't think you're a hater, Stephen. I think we no. have a lot of love for film in general. But I, we figured, well, this, at this time out, we're going we're gonna to talk about the ones that kind of get under our skin. And, and we just, we're just going to air some of that frustration with, with feature films. And we chose to do this now because there was a recent release of a massive blockbuster, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Now, this is a film that I didn't hate. I didn't sure didn't love it. And I think it has lots of problems. But in, as far as a giant dinosaur movie goes, I was, you know, there were things about it I, mind, I didn't mind. Part of the reason I think I didn't mind it was because I came to it with such low expectations having been set by Jurassic World um, in 2015, which was maybe my least favorite movie that year. It is number five on the list of the biggest box office hits of all time. That was the Colin Trevorrow film. And uh, I thought it was just terrible. I thought that... Uh, it was a pale imitation of Steven Spielberg's original 1993 adaptation of the Michael Crichton book. I thought it was the worst kind of reboot, a cynical carbon <laughs> copy effort where nothing, not the acting, the story, the special effects, nor the thrill of the thing approaches the standard set by Spielberg's original. It made a movie which came out around the same summer, Mad Max Fury Road, also based on a fallow franchise, seemed like that much more of a miracle because it was so good. Um, yeah, so I really hated Jurassic World. So coming to see this second part of this reboot, uh, I was like, oh, this actually is kind of entertaining. It had a few surprises and a little bit of heart, even though it didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the fact that anyone goes back to this island and wants to do have anything to do with these dinosaurs at all doesn't make a lot of sense because... As evidence has shown, multiple movies now, anytime you get close to these things, they eat you. <laughs> yeah, the weaponized dinosaurs. What could possibly go wrong? Um, yeah, I, I did not care for, uh, for uh, the, the first uh, Jurassic World uh, 
uh, entry. Uh, you know, I I kind of tempered my reservations. It's not that I was in love with the original Jurassic Park movies by any means. Um, you know, I, I thought the first one was okay. I thought the second one was unnecessary. Uh, and the third one, which Spielberg did not direct, uh, I thought was at least done with a sense of fun. Joe Johnston, who right. did uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, right. took over. And, and he brought more of a sense of fun to it. it, it he should have brought Rick Moranis to it, too. But I guess he was, <laughs> was taking some time off from the big screen. But, um, but at, least, at least the third one had more of that kind of feel of something like Valley of the Guanji or something like that. It was, it was more in the spirit of maybe some of those Ray Harryhausen kind of movies where you're not supposed to take it deadly seriously. And, and he kind of tried to move away from the, the, the classic uh, sort of uh, Spielberg um, cliches like the sweeping camera movements and the, the people yeah. looking up and on. Like, you know, he tried to distance himself from that and make the third one stand out a little bit more and, 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 and be more of a popcorn movie, if you will. It's not my favorite phrase in the world, but that's exactly what it was. So that was sort of my low bar was that, oh, maybe it'll be a good popcorn movie. Yeah. But because it turns out the bear, the bar was set relatively high by those, uh, that first trilogy of uh, Jurassic Park movies, uh, Jurassic World felt so kind of formulaic and by the numbers. And, uh, you know, obviously the technology to create these creatures and have them interact with humans had come uh, ahead by leaps and bounds and, uh, and pterodactyl plunges uh, since uh, since those first movies and they, they really kind of make the most of it of that in in, in the the first uh, of the you know reboot films and also the current one and and certainly uh, you know technology's ability to make us suspend our disbelief as it were as has, has certainly improved but um, you know it, it, it kind of wasted the talents of some likable actors uh, Chris Pratt was just kind of taciturn and grim and uh, unlikable, and it was uh. like, why would you, <laughs> why would you hire him for this role if you're gonna get him? He, I don't think he's the kind of actor that can play against type necessarily, and uh, and I was kind of hoping maybe they'd flesh out his character a little bit more in in the second one, and they don't really. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, I don't know. There's there's just something sour about it. Uh, yeah. That that just it didn't didn't grab me. I totally agree. Well, the first one had the two kids, which. We're entirely personality free, uh, who are involved in this in the story, and they're yes. somehow related to Bryce Dallas Howard's character. I guess they're nephews, uh, and she is also uh, not all that appealing uh, in any respect. I mean, she's not an interesting character. She's she's kind of uh, her her loyalties, I guess, are challenged, which is interesting because when she comes back in the second film, she's a different uh, character. She's a quite quite different <laughs> character. She's in completely reversed her values. That, that were established in the first film. And, you know, okay, so maybe she learned a thing or two, but but uh, still, I, I would say maybe the biggest improvement in the second, uh, from the first film is the reintroduction of Jeff Goldblum, even though he's barely in it. Like it's the, a cameo, the, yeah. The, the trailers suggest he's quite a presence in the film, but he's there for like a 90 seconds of screen time. Yeah, I, th um, I think most of what you see in the film is in the trailer yeah. of Jeff Goldblum you know that's in the you know it's condensed a little bit but basically what you see is what you get yeah yeah so uh 
you know, and, and it, it, it actually, it feels like the second Jurassic World movie repeats some of the tropes of the second Jurassic Park movie, wherein they take the monsters off the island. They, yes. And, and, you know, of course, and they introduce a, a character, Rafe, played by Rafe Spall, who's supposed to be the sort of philanthropist. He's going to help these, these animals. But, of course, I mean, it's Rafe Spall. If you've been paying any attention to his career, <laughs> he plays a lot of bad guys uh, and a lot of antagonists. And, you, I mean, it's, it's no surprise when, in fact, he has other ambitions for these creatures. He's going to, uh, you know, he's going to make a lot of money with them. And uh, and then it, it, when it switches to this this enormous house wherein there is a an, uh, an auction going on in the basement, that's when it gets somewhat interesting. I, I did like the that there was a darker thematic tone at play with the with Fallen uh, Kingdom that. Uh, that you know our heroes, despite their best intentions, are partly responsible for the catastrophic presence of these sort of rebirth, unnatural life in our modern world, and that the technology, if it exists, humans will inevitably use it, leading to our own self-destruction. And that's a very Michael Crichton-esque sentiment that I can get behind, and that felt true to what I think these stories are really about. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the current season of Westworld, which is so much better uh, <laughs> than this kind of storytelling. But, you know, it's, there are both... I mean, if you think about the original Westworld movie from 73 and then uh, Jurassic Park from 93, they're basically the same story. Uh, you know, yeah, very uh, much. Uh, and that's what Crichton was interested in. So uh, it's interesting how to see these 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 um, material, this sort of intellectual property reborn and then one work really well and one, you know, just feel like the lowest common denominator. Um, yeah. So so and again, I know this is a big hit this summer. People are loving this movie. And it, uh, you know, and I, I scratch my head about it. But then I realize, well, you do not underestimate the draw of dinosaurs. People love <laughs> dinosaurs. Kids especially oh, fair love enough, yeah. dinosaurs. And this is a monster movie, and monster movies, you know, as we've done a monster movie show, uh, monster movies, people adore those too. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's, it's not without its, uh, its positive moments. Uh, t- t- Toby Jones uh, is pretty much good in everything. Yeah, I, that's I true. <laughs> I, I didn't like his Truman Capote movie, but that was hardly his fault. Um, the, uh, the presence of Ted Levine, as uh, the evil, uh, I guess, uh, mercenary for hire yeah. who's, who's leading the, uh, the the fairly scruffy bunch who are in charge of rounding up the dinosaurs and bringing them to this mansion. You know, and it just seems like a mansion is just the wrong place to bring a bunch of dinosaurs. I don't care. Like, how, how big is this mansion? And, and the fact that <laughs> oh, James Cromwell is up in the upper floors, you know, basically ma- managing his illness, and he has no idea all this is going on. That seems strange to me. Yeah, there's that too. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and Geraldine Chaplin shows up as uh, uh, his kind of, as Cromwell's sort of assistant slash mistress or uh, the, 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 there's some, they try to lay down some mythology kind of late in the film and it's, it's, a, it's a, I don't know, a little too much too late maybe or too little too late for, for this film. But of course they do, you know, everything at the end of this film points the way towards a third installment. It's got to be another trilogy. And I'm hoping that, you know, dinosaurs on the loose in society on the mainland gives us uh, something a little more promising uh, yeah. than, uh, than what we've seen before. And maybe some, point. some real scares. Like uh, the That's one, true. Yeah. The one thing I really did like about Jurassic Park was that Spielberg's sense of suspense and, and something he, you know, has had well-developed 
going back to Jaws and Duel, was very much present in those films. Like, he, these are terrifying creatures, and, and humans seem very vulnerable when you look into the eye of the velociraptors, whereas that's something that, uh, that Colin Trevorrow entirely forgot. And Jay Bayona, who directed this uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, seems to have brought into it a little bit, but there's still a ways that we could go with this. Like, there could be some genuine fear and uh, and, and and scares in this film that uh, aren't here. And, and, you know, keep your fingers crossed for a third edition, because you know it's coming. At least that it's, it'll be another step in the right direction from these two. Because uh, I can't say that I'll ever want to watch any of these again. Maybe they'll bring back Sam Neill and Laura Dern. That would be nice, too. Well, uh, bringing back Goldblum in this film maybe points toward uh, seeing maybe some other familiar faces uh, in the third and let's hope final installment. But um, <laughs> I, I, I know that uh, there was a feeling that I think the Lost World up the, the, the second film after the original Jurassic Park, I think up the scary quotient a little bit from the first film because there were complaints that uh, those who knew and loved the book felt that Spielberg kind of... Uh, uh, you know, removed its teeth, if you will, in in a lot of ways. Okay. Like I, I think some harm does befall at least one of the kids, uh, you know, in in the original story, and I, you know, and then Lost World, uh, Jurassic Park two, if you will. Um, I think it opens up with uh, a couple of kids encountering these cute little baby dinosaurs, uh, and then they're overrun by them <laughs> early in the film. So uh, you know, and that kind of like gave us some hope that okay, this one's going to have a little more if you excuse it, this bite to it, then, um, then the first one did in that area, uh, didn't really necessarily, but at least it was a promising, promising sign. So I'm hoping, and you know, they're obviously going to be shooting for another PG 13 with the next one. So there's only so far they can go, but sure. as, as long as there's not too much blood, uh, spilled, um, at least literal blood as opposed to uh, a body count, then, uh, then they're probably okay. You know, I'm a sci-fi geek and grew up with Star Wars and Star Trek, Star Trek on TV, Star Wars in the cinema, and uh, then eventually Star Trek in the cinema as well. Um, Next Gen, when it came along in the late 80s, I was, a, I was really into that, and, and it, it, I always felt like Star Wars was something part of my childhood. Star Trek actually was, a, I was able to take with me into my adulthood because some of those stories were pretty sophisticated and, and the fact that it was a series on television they could get into stuff that didn't necessarily require the kind of budget that a, a, a giant sci-fi film requires and which is explosions and action they could actually get into some philosophical societal what have you there's some there's some some depth to some of those uh, stories and uh, so when J.J. Abrams rebooted Star Trek as a uh, an admitted Star Wars fan, I was a little concerned. Now, 2009 Star Trek was actually pretty clever. I liked how they were able to sort of use this alternative, alter, alternative, <laughs> alternative uh, uh, time frame to reintroduce these characters sort of as a as an alternate dimension. Uh, and I liked that. I thought that was cleverly done. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. Right. When are we going to get Star Trek back on television? Was what kind of my reaction to it. Like, okay, that's fine. But, but you know, uh. and then Star Trek Into Darkness arrived in 2013, directed by J.J. Abrams. Um, and, uh, it, I really loathe this film. I felt <laughs> no like kidding. they did everything wrong. It was such, it was such a departure from, 
what I think is truly interesting about Star Trek. And it also doubled down on this idea that they had to sort of reinterpret the original stories, basically redoing the Space Seed and uh, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II Wrath of Khan, in this one film. And uh, they made it uh, basically terrible. They made whatever was good about that story, uh, they they soured it. They, you know, I it was the one time where I felt like I had any kind of sympathy for those those online trolls who complain about their childhood being ruined. <laughs> you know, except this wasn't my childhood. I guess this was my like young adulthood being just like, come on, this. You know, if it had been just a self contained science fiction story, I would probably have had much more time for it than trying to sort of get my brain around how this related to anything I liked about Star Trek. And, uh, yeah, so I was just, it just infuriated me. I just, I took to the internet and I said, (laughs) I hate this movie and you guys have, have done terrible things to it. So I wrote this scathing review for whatever it's worth. Anyway, um, and then, uh, you know, they came back with a third, Star Trek Beyond, which was actually kind of charming. It wound up capturing more of the spirit of the classic Trek uh, than I would have expected. And, but again, by then, my expectations were so low that, uh, <laughs> that they, any, any improvement was, in my mind, a, a great thing. So, yeah, uh, but Star Trek Into Darkness was the one. And, of course, you know, I mean, there were people who didn't love it, and it didn't get a lot of, of love from the nerdarati on the whole. I think it was fairly mixed, uh, uh, the reception. But, uh, but yo, I just, I made, it was steaming. I was steaming mad coming out of that cinema. Yeah, I, I don't know why they had to go that way. I don't understand what the rationale was for telling a story that's already been told basically twice before uh, in, in two, you know, varying different ways. The, uh, I mean, the original Star Trek, the motion picture, I remember that made me mad back in 1970. Whenever the Robert Wise right, film, 77, sure, because it was a it was essentially a remake of an episode of the original series, um, where you know they they recapture a satellite, you know, V'ger, right, which it turns out to be Voyager. Oh, um, actually, maybe it was more like 79. I'm trying to remember I my feel dates. like it was it was after Star Wars, it right? Because I think Roddenberry had been trying to get a Star Trek movie made, and it wasn't until Star Wars took off that. Oh, maybe, you know, we own this property. Maybe we should do something with sure, it. Sure, sure. And uh, so, you know, but it basically recycled the idea of this, uh, you know, Earth-made satellite that comes back uh, a higher intelligence. And, right. And, um, you know, and I remember watching it, uh, even though I was like 11 or 12 or whatever, I was like, this seems really familiar. And then once I realized it was basically the same, although, it, you know, with the, it added a new wrinkle with Percy's Kambata sort of becoming the physical embodiment of, uh, of the satellite. But I feel like that had been done, too, on the original Star Trek, where where a, a crew member gets possessed by a higher intelligence. Sure. And yeah. uh, I think that's a different episode, though, Whom the Gods Destroy or whatever. I, I, I can't remember exactly. I, I don't have all my original... Tra- as much as I love original Star Trek, I don't have much of it memorized. But but uh, so it, it, it felt like a pretty flabby beginning. And the, the film itself is kind of slow-going and... There's a lot of, um, you know, I mean, it's nice to be back with those characters, but at the same time, it, it, you know, you miss the zippiness of a one-hour episode over the course of this two-hour-plus movie. And then, of course, with Wrath of Khan, they, uh, even though they were continuing the story with, uh, you know, with, um, with Ricardo Montalban and everything, um, it, it, it felt like it was building on the mythology instead of just copying it. But, of course, 
uh, Into Darkness, uh, it's back to copying and 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 just cribbing. It's it's like it just felt like somebody like rewriting something out of, a, of an encyclopedia and passing it in as homework, essentially. Yeah. And you know, I saw it the weekend it came out, and I think I saw it before I knew too much about it. And partway through the film, uh, you know, once I realized. Oh, they're just doing Wrath of Khan again. This is a total waste of time. And then, and then he actually comes out and says that he's Khan, and it's like, oh, they're not even just pretending that it's something new. It's just a rehash of like, why, you know, why am I sitting here? And and there's just there seemed to be something kind of smug about it, like they like Abrams and and crew like like they were pulling a fast one on us or something. Yeah. A surprise. Yeah. And when it was clear, it was so obvious, like yeah. why they even tried to hide it. And then they do, and this is a little bit of a spoiler folks. So if, I mean, I don't know, I would never recommend you see this film and I can't imagine anyway, but I'm going to tell you something about what happens in the third act here. So, which is that a character who died in wrath of Khan, it, it flipped, they flip the two characters who one who lives and one who dies. And uh, and it is it, it feels so calculated. It feels so almost tongue in cheek, and it just feels like they've crapped all over this uh, this much beloved fantasy property with this this choice. I mean, it just feels yeah. There's something calculated. There's something misjudged, and it's just something plain wrong about that. Yeah, and of course, the beauty of Wrath of Khan is. Ricardo Montalban is, you know, he, he's such a powerful screen presence. I mean, not that Cumberbatch isn't, but uh, Montalban, you know, just had this fury within him and, uh, you know, was a was the bad guy, but also generated an insane amount of sympathy for his plight. I mean, this this guy and his and his his followers had really been screwed around by by the. Um, I want to say the Empire, but of course it's not the Empire. The it's Federation. the Federation. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I often Star Trek and Star Wars sometimes merge in my brain, um, but but you know, but there was always that you know, and I think that's a Roddenberry thing. Like, you know, I, I, it was rare on Star Trek that you'd get a villain that was completely and fully evil. There'd always yeah. be a sympathetic, you know, either they're just misunderstood, or you know, <laughs> or or you know, they you know, you had to turn around and see things from their point of view, and that was kind of his take on the Cold War, I guess. You know that he was all. You know, I guess the Russians love their children too. Um, but <laughs> thank you, Sting. <laughs> Sting in space. Where's that movie? Uh, it's called Dune. Oh right, yes. <laughs> I will kill you. Um, but uh, the but Cumberbatch, you know, of course, you know, brings that kind of cold, calculating presence to the role. And I just wish maybe they invested that in a completely different character and not in something that we've seen a better version of. You know, twenty years or thirty years before, or however long it's been. So, yeah, like kind of a kind of a failure in space uh, on that one. Yeah, it really is. I don't think I'm ever going to want to go back and and watch that ever again. And, and you know, but it's funny when you mentioned the Star Trek the motion picture. I have gone back to watch that, and I kind of got got it. Like I didn't like it like yourself. I didn't like it much when I was young. But in years hence I've watched it and I've appreciated the pacing of it and how they're trying trying to create a mood using, you know, cinematic storytelling but also special effects and and it's so different than so many of those TV uh the TV episodes that it feels a little bit like it I don't know, it feels a little ill-advised but at the same time I, I, I yeah I wound up I, anyway, last time I saw it I wound up enjoying it a lot more than I expected I think there are still pleasures to be had in that film because we do have you know I think all of the original cast 
intact, more or less, uh, hair pieces and otherwise. But, but uh, you know, and it's also practical effects and models. So it's, you know, spaceships move like in a comprehensible physical way. They're not driving in the Starship Enterprise like it's a, like a Ferrari, uh, you know, and dodging meteors and whatever. It's, it's, it, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it still makes sense in a linear logical kind of way, even though it's familiar. Um, you know, it, 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 and, and there is a lot of emphasis on character and, and like you say, and mood and so on. And, uh, and let's face it, space travel would have to be really boring. <laughs> so not that, you know, not that any film needs to be set in outer space and be really boring, but it's, you know, when when films can kind of convey that sort of routine and so on, uh, the way that, say, Solaris or 2001 Space Odyssey or whatever can. Um, I'm not saying that Star Trek, uh, the motion picture is was trying to be realistic in its portrayal of life in space. But, yeah, you're right. The, the pacing is... is it seems slow by comparison to today's standards, but it's still, uh, it still it it works for those characters and everything. And uh, yeah, a lot of the things that people had issues with uh, with that film aren't necessarily the things that I have issue with compared to you know the plot elements and unoriginality. But but it, it can be fun just to go back and spend time with those characters. I mean, that's even true of some of the some of the lesser entries in the series before they finally like kind of do away with the the whole Enterprise thing um, and kill off Kirk and so on. Uh, the the one that uh, was it f- not was it five the one <laughs> where they meet God where they meet God and yeah and Shatner directs um, <laughs> yes you know I I like elements of that it's not you know it's it's a weirder entry in that series but then of course the same with the TV series there's you know for every trouble with tribbles you've got to put up with a bunch of hippies going down to Eden yeah <laughs> a few episodes yeah. later so I, I I agree there are some of those those uh, the movie versions that really don't work. Um, but I'm, I, I'll just say this as, as a longtime Star Trek, a Trekkie Trekker, uh, that I am glad that it's back on television. That's where it belongs. And I, I really enjoyed much of Star Trek Discovery last season. So I'm hoping that that, that continues and they really find their feet in the next season. And, mm. uh, uh, yeah, there were lots of things about it. I, I liked about that show. So anyway, all of which to say is, uh, I didn't, my, my, I haven't. It hasn't been soured. My bad experience with, uh, was was with Star Trek uh, Into Darkness hasn't soured my feeling about the franchise as a whole. I still think that there's there's a lot of uh, good that can come from more stuff. And let's hope that it sticks to TV because I think that's mm. where it does that has you know it has the best uh, chance of of doing what it's best at. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know smaller, more focused stories. Although I, you know, like I say, the, the last Star Trek feature did kind of pull the fat out of the fire with some interesting aliens and yeah. some, some some twists and and so on. So you know, there's there's hope that that will continue, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, speaking of disappointment in space, did you see Solo by any chance? <laughs> Since we, we've talked we have, about Star Trek, should we move over to well, Star Wars? I'm just, we haven't because this is this is a less this is kind of a free form sort of show. Sure, I mean we have a, a, a theme of sorts, but um, I realize you know we haven't talked about a lot of the big blockbusters of the summer um, for you know just you know why why yeah. bother why talk about an Avengers movie or whatever? But but um, but well, Solo is the one that seems to be kind of mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I would say that uh, it's funny. I had a long conversation with uh, 
with Lucas, uh, our, my friend Lucas, who is a filmmaker, uh, on that podcast I do on uh, associated with my blog, uh, the Flaw in the Iris podcast, and he was a huge fan of Solo. He was all over it. He thought it's the best of the recent Star Wars movies. He even thought maybe it's the best since Empire Strikes Back, and I was like, whoa, really? Because, <laughs> dude, I had a, such a different experience with it. Like, um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't actively, you know, like was I wasn't really annoyed by it, but I just felt like it was a missed opportunity, and I felt like what was it that didn't work about it? Like I I like Alden Ehrenreich as an actor, and I think that he has moments in the film, but it almost felt like the movie was um, where he wasn't the lead. Like he, I felt like his character arc and his emotional journey was less interesting than everyone around him and yes. then they cast <laughs> and then they cast um you know uh, uh Donald Glover as Lando and he is like a charisma bomb like oh yeah he, guy he just, totally knocks that character out of the park yeah with, by not overdoing it for one yes. thing he plays it cool and that's Lando so yeah totally totally and I mean he is so if I can say, he is so hot right now uh, with <laughs> that and with his work with uh, Atlanta, which is terrific, and then Childish Gambino. I mean, he is just, he's one of the, the biggest rising stars in America right now. So you can't help but watch that guy. And you, you, we're miss him when he's not on screen. So there's that. There's other characters in the story. One, uh, the, the character played by Amelia Clark is also really interesting. Like there's all sorts of conflict going on there. And Unfortunately, Solo himself comes off as kind of like more of a Luke Skywalker character. Like he's very immature, he's very naive, and you know, I didn't buy it. I'm like the Han Solo that I know and love always had a little bit of cynicism to him. Even when he was young, he must yeah. have had that same. He must have been he probably was just cockier. He's probably more of a pain in the butt to be around than he became. I think by the time that we meet him and he's say around 30 during Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, he has he has found maybe a little bit of softness, a little bit of goodness, and that's the moment that's his character journey in that in those films. But I I would always imagine that back in the day he was probably someone who was a lot more likely to do the wrong thing than the right thing. And I felt like the writers of this this film got that wrong. Yeah. Well, of course, we all know what a jumble the production of the film was, you know, sure. with the original team being fired partway through production and then Ron, no sharp edges, Howard stepping in to, to finish it off and, you know, and, and, and doing a, a competent job of making a, a, a reasonably fun space opera adventure film. But, um, you know, it could have been so much more than that, uh, you know, given that that Han Solo, you know, could use a little more complexity. I mean, we, we know this character, uh, you know, has has a lot of darkness in him that kind of got pared away over the course of, you know, the original Star Wars trilogy. But, you know, the guy we meet in that Moss Eisley cantina who shoots Greedo first, of course, as we would prefer to think of him, um, you know, that, that guy... Uh, is not the guy we see at the end of Solo. No. So um, the presumption being there are more movies to come that bring him there. I, I guess. guess so. But but you know the guy's an orphan, so he should be pretty. Sin and you know he's a young adult and and kind of alone. So you think he should have some of that misanthropic um, characteristic uh, right off the get go, and and it feels like it's sort of there early in the film, and maybe that's 
Chris Miller or whatever the original team. Maybe yeah, Lord that, and Miller. Yeah, Lord and Miller. I, I I think maybe that's some of their doing. Where at at, at the start, he, it seems like he's a little more hard bitten and and uh, rough and ready. And but then when we get into the main storyline, um, you know, he he sort of softens up and you know looks to Woody Harrelson to be kind of uh, kind of lead the story along until. It, Becomes time for them to kind of split ways, and uh, and it just doesn't feel quite right. Like it feels like he should he should be you know getting some teeth along the way, and and uh, that's not really what the film does. Uh, you know, but I I it's one of those films where I did enjoy it on a, a base level of you know just having fun watching a roller coastery kind of movie unfold. But of course, uh, it's part of such a bigger mythology with uh, with so much more potential for depth. Even though even if it's not always there, um, that it, it could have been a lot more. Well, we don't have a ton of time left. We're in the last segment of the show, and uh, we can uh, we can maybe chill out and and look at some films from years past that uh, have sort of become classics over the years. Have kind of been lauded as either Oscar winners or you know box office greats, or or even just fondly remembered films from childhood or whatever that. Uh, don't necessarily have the same resonance for either of us. And uh, I, I'm trying to think of where to start with this list. Um, and maybe a, a, a good example would be a, a director wh- whose name has already come up in association with some giant dinosaur movies. Uh, and that's Steven Spielberg, uh, generally regarded as the greatest Hollywood blockbuster director currently working. I mean, we, we've had... He's been he's still prolific. We've had The Post and Ready Player One in pretty short order over the last year or so. And, uh, you know, certainly I think it's safe to say has had more hits than misses over the course of his career. And, and even the films that don't necessarily uh, knock it out of the park um, box office-wise are, are often quite interesting and well-made and have something to recommend them. Often those are the kind of films of his that we might even prefer, like, a, like An Empire of the Sun or Munich or, you totally. know, some of these films that... You know, on paper, might be regarded as misfires by some in the biz, but but uh, are maybe his more mature and uh, more thought out, uh, more thought out films. Um, and uh, you know, and then there are films like uh, say Always, which <laughs> people yeah. I know there I've met people that love that film. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, you does know, not work. Audrey Hepburn I mean, is a draw, but otherwise, I can't really. And she's I'd, totally wasted. Yeah, I can't really think of why. Now, my my of of Spielberg's canon and you know people adore him i mean i absolutely love jaws i love raiders um i i love close encounters um of those early ones i do not love et and uh, i feel like i'm at a, at a meeting and admitting you know my <laughs> my problem with et i think part of the problem was i mean i saw it when it came out i saw it when i was about 12 which feels like the right age to see a movie like that and i remember not being that into movies with, about kids like I wanted to see movies about adults and, and I've never been I was never a kid who wanted to see movies about other kids. And so that was part of the problem. Uh, I also felt even then that that movie was one of the more manipulative of Spielberg's work. Like I just was like I almost was resenting that he was trying to make me cry at the end. 
and he was so blatant about it with the uh, John Williams score and this super cute, though strangely ugly alien. And, uh, you know, and I, I get what he was doing, and I love the way he created this sort of, like, magical world within suburbia in America. I think that's one of the things that, that the film really does well. But uh, I have never had any interest in revisiting E.T., watching it again recently years. I, like, I've had lots of opportunities. I'm just not on board. Well... You're not alone. I'm not a fan of E.T. either. I did not see it when it came out. I remember it played at the Highland Theater, uh, which no longer exists, but it was at the Armdale Roundabout, for those of you who live in Halifax and know the geography, uh, right at the end of the Northwest Arm there, there used to be a great one-screen theater called the Highland Theater. And it was kind of a... It was kind of a 50s kind of theater. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a grand movie palace like, say, the Capitol or, or even the Casino on Goddard Street. You know, it was a more, um, you know, kind of a suburban single screen theater. Of course, there, there were these new blossoming communities just across uh, the Arm and Armdale and, and Spryfield, Fairview and that kind of thing. So that, that was kind of the market it was built to service. And... Uh, you know, and then for a while there, it was kind of an art house theater. That's where it was, it was owned initially by Odeon and then Empire. And now it's condos or something. It blew up. They, they, somebody left the popcorn machine on overnight and exploded. <laughs> and the, th- the theater kind of actually imploded from the from the um, uh, backdraft. Uh, not that the movie was playing, but uh, the, the actual backdraft <laughs> from the fire. Um, anyway, uh-huh. E.T. E. played there for... I swear for like three months or something like that. Like it was crazy that, and, and you know, this is one of the reasons why the move to multiplex was, you know, that you could run a movie for that long and just because you'd have m- multiple screens to juggle titles around in those days, you know, it, it you know, pulled back by popular demand or held over by popular demand, but it really put a crimp in trying to, you know, keep the cycle going of new theatrical features. And, uh, you know, I kind of resented its overwhelming popularity. It was right. such a huge hit. And I, you know, I, I like Spielberg's work. I, I think I'd, I'd seen Jaws by that point in Close Encounters and enjoyed those films. I hadn't seen his first two features, uh, Duel and Sugarland Express yet. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed the films that I had seen. Uh, but somehow the, the idea of a cute alien didn't, uh, didn't catch my fancy. I think, oh, you know, I wanted aliens to be mean and... You know, like alien. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not, not the, like or the thing. Yeah, exactly. Not 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 the not a, a cute kind of disnified uh, kind of alien, and uh, so I didn't actually see it. And now, mind you, I didn't watch it on home video. I actually waited until there was some sort of anniversary reissue, and it, it might have been the one where they threatened to digitally remove the guns. I remember, yeah, and replace them with walkie-talkies, and uh, you know, change some of the dialogue. And I think at the last minute, he decided not to. Uh, alter the film. And I, I don't know that that version ever saw the light of day. I don't know. I, I didn't see it. I didn't go back. Um, so. But uh, so this version, the one that I saw, I remember it did have, uh, you know, the guns. And I think one of the kids calls one of the other kids like penis breath or something like that. And, uh-huh. and yeah, I, I didn't enjoy the, the, the overt manipulation. I, I, you know, John Williams working overtime to, to make these images kind of, you know, make your heart flutter or whatever. And, you know, I, it's and and the really obvious kind of Christ allegory really got on my nerves the way they they kind of played it up. I mean, obviously, you know, Spielberg's kind of reaching back and and borrowing from like King of Kings and these you know classic uh, biblical epic uh, Jesus movies, and I, I didn't like that aspect of it either. And <clears throat> um, and you know, of course, using kids 
to kind of hype that sentimentality is uh, is like box, you know box office poison as far as I'm concerned. So I, you know, I I came away from it with with the same kind of like I wasn't feeling exhilarated. And I know some people love the film; they love when the bikes take flight, and uh, you know, and I, I do have to say that there are some aspects of the film where it does reason, you know, does a good job at portraying the life of kids at that time and you know how they relate to their parents uh-huh. and their siblings. I think it does a pretty good job of that. I think that's in Melissa Matheson's screenplay. Um, that's those are the strong elements of her writing that come to the fore. But then, you know, when Spielberg pours on the the treacle, is is yeah. what pulls me away from. Yeah, that. it's a uh, he does sense of wonder really well, and I, I I see that in the film, and I remember it well from the film. But I. Yeah, I, I felt, I feel exactly like you did. I was just kind of like, eh, this just isn't for me. And uh, and it's funny, it's weird feeling that when it's such a huge, it taps into the zeitgeist and becomes the biggest movie ever, like the biggest box office hit for years. It was the it was the record holder. Um, yeah, I didn't even want to buy Reese's Pieces after, <laughs> after seeing it. Um, so much for product placement. Uh, now, speaking of, of films then it was all also up for best picture that year did not win gandhi won of all things yes but uh speaking of he was robbed yeah seriously um of oscar contenders uh forrest gump is another on my list of movies uh that i cannot get on board with when i when it came out in 94 i was so annoyed by it i saw it i remember saw in ottawa and I remember watching it out of the cinema, just cheesed off, and I couldn't figure out necessarily why. And then I thought about it some more, and I realized it was be- mostly due to the subplot involving Jen A. Jen A, Forrest's <laughs> true love, played by Robin Wright. She's a thoughtful, independent woman who goes her own way and is rewarded for it by illness and death. And the implication is if she just stayed with simple, innocent Forrest uh, and been a good wife instead of being a free-thinking activist, she never would have caught AIDS and died. <laughs> and so, you know, there's more to the politics of the thing, um, you know, and 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 there was but that was the crux of it and when the and of course it was the the problem my problem with it was was doubly felt when at the academy awards in early 95 it won best picture over four stellar and more deserving films in my opinion pulp fiction four weddings and a funeral quiz show and the shawshank redemption uh classics all in their own way each one of those and a raid against this collection, this slab of conservative Americana won the day, which I just, ugh, it just drove me crazy. So anyway, I should admit, though, a while back I stumbled across uh, Forrest Gump on, on, on TV while channel surfing, and I watched maybe an, you know a third of it or something. And I was still bugged by the politics, but I did find myself enjoying Tom Hanks' performance. I think he is really good in the film, and I think about, you know, it's kind of Woody Allen's Zelig for the Heartland, and uh, <laughs> and I, I sort of felt like, you know, if thinking about Tom Hanks in it and comparing it to his role in Philadelphia as Andrew Beckett in the the year before, I mean, it's hard to believe it's the same guy. It's an astonishing range that he showed right then, and of course, you know, deservedly he won both Academy Awards for Best Actors those years. Um, you know, so I, I think there is something to be said for movies that catch the zeitgeist. Uh, that have a, become a cultural event and there's just no arguing with it. Um, but I will continue to deny that life is in any way like a box of chocolates. <laughs> It'll kill you, just like a <laughs> box of chocolates. <laughs> you know, it's a slow death, but yeah, yeah. It, it'll get you in the end. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of Forrest Gump either. That 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 weird retrograde philosophy that it puts across, you know, it's 
it's almost like, you know, conservatives who just wish it could be like the Eisenhower 1950s mm-hmm. all over again and, you know, or, or the Nixon years or something like that. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a message that, you know, being a progressive thinker and, 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 uh, you know, just, just be a simpleton and then good things will come to you. I just, uh, I don't buy any of it. Um, there are good things in it, of course. Gary Sinise is fantastic. Yeah, yeah he is good. As, as, as Lieutenant Dan, mm-hmm. Captain Dan, I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> but um, it's, I saw it once in the theater and that was plenty. Uh, and Sally Fields is very good as the mom, although as, as many are fond of pointing out, like it was only a few years earlier that Sally Field actually played like Remember the punchline? She was yeah. with Tom Hanks. and the, As his love interest or something, wasn't it? I don't or, know if they were quite... I saw the punchline when it came out. I, I don't know that they became lovers, but they were certainly like equals age-wise. Yeah. She, she plays a housewife who wants to become a stand-up comic. Um, and, uh, and, and Hanks is kind of the cynical comedian who decides to coach her, as it were. Right. And... Uh, you know, and and actually, that's a really good Hanks performance because he's kind of unlikable, which is not sure. something that he plays too often. Mm-hmm. Um, th- I'm sure there are other examples of it uh, throughout his filmography, but that was one of the earliest examples that I can think of. Um, but yeah, there was there was a sour undertone to that movie, and I I, I find Zemeckis always you know just takes those few steps too far in most of his films. Like I just find he either goes over a line in terms of you know, what makes sense for the story or, you know, what, what would draw us into it. And I, you know, I, I remember liking some of his early work, but, uh, you know, I think once he stopped working with, uh, with Bob, I think Bob Gale was his sort of writing and producing partner. Once Bob Gale, uh, cashed out around uh, the time of back to the future, you know, he just, he just really hasn't worked since, uh, right. you know, except on other back to the future related projects. Um, but, um, you know, I think he just figured out like, like I never need to work another day in my life. Why am I killing myself for this for? Because um, I, I really don't know what Bob Gale's been doing since Back to the Future. But um, you know, Zemeckis kind of plows ahead and uh, and has made some sort of you know a string of unnoteworthy films. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to think. Uh, I mean, know, I like Contact, but uh, I yeah, know you I, don't. I'm not a fan of Contact. Um, but uh, there are plenty of other forgettable Zemeckis pictures in the years since. Um, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit might be the one good film I can pull out of that later period. Um, and even that's kind of bitter and weird and dark. But because of the setting and the, the whole animation theme, I can I can kind of go with it. And Bob Hoskins is so great in it. But, um, you know, I guess The Walk wasn't too bad. The one yeah. with the, but that, that might be the best film of his later career. But then there's Polar Express, for which I can never <laughs> forgive him for. That is <laughs> such, a, such a nightmare on, at the Nightmare at the North Pole would be a better uh, title for that film, but uh, that, that's just me, I guess. Yeah, um, you know, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I do want to say, by the way, uh, that uh, I have another on my list here that won the Academy Award the year after Forrest Gump, and that was Braveheart, which I just find... I remember people comparing it favorably to Last of the Mohicans, which I find as a much more successful and emotionally engaging and uh, impressive uh, action, period action film, whereas Braveheart just feels to me way over the top. It allows Mel Gibson the chance to further his martyred self-flagellation to the point where it gets kind of sickening. Um, and there's something totally broy about the movie. Like, it's just very masculine in that sort of toxic way. Yes. And I just don't have much time for it. Though I will say his later film, Apocalypto, still impresses me. Uh, but this one... 
I, I just, I never want to see it again. Every time it comes on, I'm just like, oh, would you just stop yelling? <laughs> Freedom, <laughs> which wasn't a concept uh, <laughs> at the time. Uh, yeah, Braveheart, oh, man. Uh, it's, uh, what's the most positive thing that's come out, out of Braveheart? Guys painting themselves blue at football games <laughs> in Scotland. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not a film that's aged well, but I think that's, that's often the case with Oscar winners. Like, often the film that wins... If you, if you look historically at, at the list of best picture winners, most of them don't age particularly well. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the next year was English Patient, a film which now apparently nobody ever liked. Uh, you know, if it, which is you know, and I will go on record saying, well, I liked it at the time. I yeah, me I, too. I haven't revisited it, but Anthony Minghella had lots of good work. In yeah, it. and I I, th- I think maybe just be, people thought of it as being endemic of the kind of film that wins Oscars. You know, the the the, the kind of fancy vaguely foreign British kind of production that seems designed and Saul Zance as a producer is kind of you know is like he's the king of those like Harvey Weinstein would become you know kind of would always pitch films in that direction um Braveheart didn't have much competition that year. Apollo 13 was probably the maybe the best film of the bunch. Il Postino was thought to be the underdog. I mean, that's a lovely film. Mm. Maybe not best picture Sense material. and Sensibility I liked. But. Yeah, that, I mean, of all those films, that would be the one I'd go back and watch. Babe uh, might have the most devoted following of <laughs> any of them these days. Um, I mean, the year The English Patient won, that was, you know, it won over Fargo. And, uh, right. you know, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, which is an amazing film. Shine, uh, uh, which which is a, is a terrific biopic, uh, you know. So certainly it was the best of, the, of that particular bunch, but uh, you know that's a whole other show. <laughs> Oscar winners are, yeah. are always contentious and, and almost always not necessarily the the, the best of the bunch. I mean, uh, even like uh, Shape of Water, uh, which is a film I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I love uh, Guillermo del Toro. It's not his best film, no, it by isn't. any stretch. So. I don't know that it was necessarily the best film of that year either, but uh, it was cool to see it win. And I guess that's maybe people thought it would be cool to see it win. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know that, that that was his film that should have uh, been in that position. But, you know, it, uh, it it brought a lot of attention to his work. and Yeah. You know, and it felt like a, a body of work award yeah. in some ways because Those are fairly common. He, he had he had that, that uh, show of his uh, creative work and his collection, his sort of ephemera collection in Toronto that I saw last year and it was amazing but it reminded me of how consistent his vision has been and uh, yeah, I, I, I rare to say anything bad about a uh, Guillermo del Toro film and I, I was glad to see him get recognized as a sci-fi genre picture especially, which so rarely does um, but anyway, we are getting a little bit off topic, uh, uh, this is this is kind of we're taking pot shots at at blockbusters and yeah I totally agree with you the Oscars is full of them I mean is anyone going to want to watch Argo again uh, <laughs> I mean even the artist which seemed to me like such a perverse choice uh, I mean a lovely film uh, instantly forgettable but again yeah. a movie about Hollywood and you know how much Hollywood loves movie movies about Hollywood yeah exactly it's 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 a total souffle. But uh, I have no desire to go back and watch it again. I don't actually remember what happened in it. Uh, I, I guess he, at the end, he, you know, learns to sing and sound comes in or whatever. But um, yeah, I'd, I'd rather yeah, watch I... Mel Brooks' silent movie, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> yeah, than, sure. than go back and watch uh, the actor again. And, and Argo, uh, even then, it just seemed like, really? That's the best pick? I mean, it, it, it's an entertaining enough look at those events. It's 
far from truthful. No, totally. Um, completely you know, fabricated. Especially if you look at the role of the Canadians and Ken Taylor, which gets downplayed a fair bit Seriously. in this film. Uh, I do like the fact that there is a reference to Pizza Corner in it. <laughs> is there? I don't remember. One, one of... One of the, uh, when they're giving them out the fake passport, the Canadian passports, and one of them is uh, an address on Grafton Street that just happens to be, uh, right, a pizza, like, a, like one of those apartments on Grafton by the old library. No kidding. If, I mean, if you punch the actual address on the, the passport into uh, Google Maps or, or fake driver or whatever the idea or whatever it is, if you punch it in, it's like right above uh, where, uh, you know, JK's Donaires or whatever that place was or right. I don't know I, I don't keep track of what the businesses are down there they're always shifting but but I thought okay well that's sort of funny and and people actually people at the screen I went to one of those early screenings of it and it was a, a packed house and people got that and thought that was very funny uh-huh. but the, that's hardly a reason why the film succeeds or, or not yeah. on the strength of its merit and uh, you know like I, I think maybe Ben Affleck Maybe he shouldn't have been in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, With that he, oh, I, weird I, haircut. I really like him as a director for the most part, but I do not always appreciate him as a as a uh, screen presence. And I felt like he was doing too much on that film. Like seriously, dude, f- cast someone else. Cast your brother. I don't know to play that role. <laughs> he would have been better at it. Well, that wraps up our session of being haters here on Lens Me Your Ears. Um, and uh, hopefully we found a sympathetic ear to some of our movie plights and woes. Uh, you know, it's not that it's a really strong stand to come out and say you, you, know, you don't like... Uh, you don't like ET, and I'm sure we're not the only ones. But, but it, you know, sometimes it's nice to know you're in good company. And I'll confess, I actually, I'm not a huge, I don't mind it, but I'm not a huge Empire or Raiders of the Lost Ark fan. So, okay, that's, so that's interesting. Uh, I find, I would, I find if, it a bit mechanical. If I'd known that before, Stephen, we might have come to fisticuffs <laughs> that, here in that's the studio true. because, dude, that is a classic. That is, that is, I hold that close <laughs> to my heart. First time I watched it, I just felt like it was a movie computer calculating entertainment value. But anyway, I'm clearly in the minority on that one. And uh, I appreciate you being honest, though. His, you know? History we, his, history has certainly proven me wrong on that score. We can, we can uh, you know, we can be honest about these things. That's what they're here for. This is like, this is like movie therapy in here, where now we can, now that we've admitted all this, we can relax and we can go about our business. That's it for this show. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. You can leave a comment there. And on Twitter, at Lindsay me your ears and we also have a patreon that uh is sitting sad and lonely somewhere online which uh would love to have a visit and and maybe a, a few dollars thrown into uh, to boost its spirits uh and you can find me online i have a twitter account at ns underscore s cook that's s-c-o-o-k-e yeah and i have one as well i named it uh, after my blog flaw in the iris And of course, as always, we'd like to thank the good folks here at CKDU FM 88.1 for letting us use their fine production facilities and also for airing this show every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And the folks at Village Soundcast Network for putting all the finishing touches on it and getting it up online so you can download it from Stitcher or iTunes or whatever podcast choice you choose. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>